Hello, and welcome back to the Tribe Podcast. I'm your host, Tavi. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. Today, I am embarking on a conversation with my father. Corinne is not joining me for today's discussion. We're going to be discussing the topic of addiction and what that means in the Black community, within my family, within our dynamic. I just wanted to invite my father onto the show and have a very candid conversation with him. And I wanted to give him an opportunity to come on this platform and share his personal story with all of our listeners. Without further ado, I just want to introduce you guys to my father. You can start. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the tribe. Hi, everybody. Me, I'm Ivan LaPalmer, otherwise known as Shah. Shah Vijayunikala. Name given to me myself. You'll learn about that later. Thank Where you are you from? Like um, the well, okay, let's start, let's start from the beginning. I was born in Bronx. Born in Bronx at Long Hospital. 1972, so you're quick in math, you know where I'm at. Um, <laughs> I was, I'm the eldest of eight, four on my mother's side, three boys, one girl, and on my father's side, two boys, two girls. Uh, we primarily grew up mainly in the Bronx, so I was about nine. Went through a great deal of things there. Uh, life really began to shape itself in choices. So I like to stop there because I don't know if your questions some of the questions you may ask has a very deep beginning root right. from where I grew up. Thank you for the introduction. I do have some questions set up here that Karun and I curated together, and some are more personal, some are more general, so you can answer whichever ones you like. Some are open-ended, and if there's at any point anything that you want to add or something that just you feel is important to share on this platform, feel free to interrupt. If you don't feel comfortable answering anything, just let me know and we'll move on. Right. So where should we start? I mean, we can talk about a lot of things. What is addiction to you? How do you define it? Wow. To state what addiction is, mm-hmm. is to ask the person what cancer is, mm-hmm. ask individual leukemia, Alzheimer's. It's something that's part of you you didn't know existed. It showed itself up and it's um, it's hard to quantify it only because it's still it's still present in me today. I didn't know I was an addict. Mm-hmm. Being diagnosed as an addict, um, at first I rejected it. But then when you're seeing effects, incarceration, um, loss of property, near death experiences, you do not have your own choosing of your right mind, then you notice you're being guided by a thing that's greater than you. And these are elements, and I read up, read up on addiction, it is actually a disease of the mind. And it dawned on me that wherever the mind goes, the body will follow. Mm-hmm. So addiction in its, in its broad sense, in its broad scope, is undefinable because people are living through it every day. Right. As an addict, I am coping and dealing with my addiction by being honest as it as possible today with my closest one, you, plus my, the ones I love, so that I can prevent, hopefully, the effects that you, as you well know, barred me from being the dad, the man, the individual I believe I was meant to be. Okay, and with all of that being said, can you talk more specifically, if at all, you acknowledging at some point in your life that you are an addict based off 
off of what you've been through, how it might have shaped any type of perspectives on life in general for you. Okay. The reason I stopped early expanding my earlier years, because that's where I believe I pulled the energy to fuel my addiction. Mm-hmm. What I mean is I dealt with pain, being my brother and my sister, we were subjected to uh, a great deal of abuse early. To run away from great pain or great agitation, you develop coping mechanisms, coping mechanisms, a dark space where nothing can get in. Right, and as a way to protect, a way protect to yourself. Protect yourself because you will break. Mm-hmm. You'll break any other way. This doesn't make sense. So if I can sit down and tell you, I can may not say the date, but your uncle can tell you the moment I decided to abstain and feel pain. My mother beat me for three hours and some odd minutes. And we know this because she kept sending them to go look at the clock, tell her what time it was. And she would switch arms, beating my butt. Wow. Over her lap on my boat thinking, I didn't feel nothing after a while. I remember laying there, so I'm gonna tie her arm out. And I remember I was over a piece of meat that I took it off a pot in the refrigerator. I, I was hungry. As a kid, reaching for me, I took a piece of meat out of the pot. You know what I mean? And lied about it. Um, but yeah, I didn't think I deserved to get beat for three hours for it. No child deserves that. Well, you know, at that time, that was just one of many. It was just that moment I remember feeling that that separation feeling that I got years later when the first time I ever used a substance that helped me remove me from that. To escape. And it's not, you're not doing the high or whatever you're reaching for to erase that. You don't know what you're doing for that traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. Yet as you go on and as you evolve and as your mind is working, as your mind is thinking, I can honestly say that that moment in my life, it was that moment that I remember separating one. The first time you felt yourself separate from what you were My environment, my environment, the actual environment I was in. You felt yourself kind of, no, this is not, I'm not is, here right now. I'm not here right now. I understand. I'm not here right now. What's going on, I don't feel until I'm ready to activate. So that was my control mechanism. As it relates to a substance, which exacerbates. Now, addiction can come in many forms, mm-hmm. as you have known. Mm-hmm. The first one I had been eating from it because I was an overweight child. Mm-hmm. So mastication, chewing, adding to my mouth, a little very heavy. Yet when I, I think it was about 18, when the real effects of marijuana was the real feeling like, yes, this is what I want to feel for the rest of my life. That moment, was it an answer for you? For everything. I didn't feel nothing. I didn't feel any how I wanted to do was laugh. Was it introduced to you casually or were you around an environment where it was easy to apply? It was casual. Very first time I was 16 mm-hmm. in a foster home. And I remember going to cop weed with a foster sister. But <laughs> You guys uh, can't see this right now, but he just did air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> At that time, I was probably 16. Mm-hmm. And the effects didn't hit me. The room, I think it was three other individuals, they all were high. high. I was looking at them like, what are y'all doing? However, years of, I was about 18, two years later, my ex fiance, she wasn't my fiance at the time, it was with her, with it hit me, like mm-hmm. the feeling. Mm-hmm. And I remember chasing that feeling. Ever since? Ever since. Now, there's different variations of that feeling. That's the main feeling. However, I didn't know answered another coping mechanism which i did develop years later which i, I have a high anxiety 
mm-hmm. which I didn't know I was experiencing then. Right. And the, the uninformed, I wake up on a hundred, mm-hmm. where most people gradually get to that state. I wake up as if I'm late already. Right. I know you and I had a conversation personally about anxiety, how it affects both of us. And that is another topic that I would love to talk about on the show with other people. But in regards to you having anxiety, smoking or using marijuana also became another way to cope and shield, protect you from those intense feelings because, you know, anxiety definitely uh, warp your perception of reality. Especially the moment of reality. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that serious. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's actually in the moment. Your mind is not with you. And yet you're reacting. Having a physiological reaction to the and especially when I wake up. No one seems to know how to make sense of that. And uh, at times my overreaction is misinterpreted. Um, mm-hmm. However, like I said, from being as a beaten awakened from abuse as a child, don't know what home I'm waking up in, remembering getting my thoughts together. Okay, I'm not knowing where your next meal is coming from. Not knowing from being in prison, mm-hmm. being um, being beaten for charges that I was upon my body that was false, but yet I had to deal with it. Yeah, there, there's been a lot of instances in my life where I had to answer the bell quickly right now. And to wake up and to let that go, PTSD, all of these things come with it. Yet it was just gradual. It, it was over time. It was it, it intertwined with it, but over time. You became dependent on it. Dependent on it. And whereas now there's been moments of abatement. I've had moments of success. I didn't fully graduate in college. However, I did get my practical hours. Repeat that again. You did. I didn't finish my college on the way. I did complete Farmingdale transfer to Catherine Gibbs before Catherine Gibbs absolved themselves. Then I went to institution I went to them and achieved my associates in health and restaurant management. So I did have moments of success where I went from there, went down to Delaware, and I got a job through Sizzler, became a manager. Yet all these times I was smoking weed. It didn't prevent me from being. It wasn't always a hindrance. A hindrance. Success. Yet. It became a clutch in other ways, though. Other ways. I was involved in a. You know how you would say when it's the females older than the male is younger. It's a May December relationship. A May December? I know when it's a. Uh, the female was older than me. She was 12 years my senior. Like an age gap. Very. I mean, I would call that predatory, but at the same time, if you were. Well, I was of age. You were of age? I was 18, she was 30. I don't know what you call that. I so, mean, you would call her, they, I don't know, the, the term they use is a cougar, but that doesn't really make much sense for what you're trying to categorize well, we, in a relationship. We, we was in a relationship six years. Oh, we're serious. But she was still 12 years old. So I, I developed from a boy, 18, to a young, immature man, unemotionally grown, because I sit and deal with none of the stuff, the more that violence and childhood. I meet her, put on this fake hat, like I'm, I got it together. She's a woman of three kids, and I'm an 18 year old boy stepping out into the world. Right. So, you know, and it's through her I met, I got the love of marijuana. That relationship also was another cog. Yeah, not even growing emotionally. Right. I mean, I was still it was just it was just another source for you to like keep at your habit, but to also keep you afloat mentally, emotionally, keep your anxiety low. Because I thought this what it was supposed to be a man. Right. She was showing me. I was only physical. Physically, I was a big guy. 
Let's walk to 80. Since you're going on to that topic, another thing I have listed here I wanted to ask you was how have some of your actions led to certain consequences in your life? I know it's pretty general, but you were you were touching on that lightly earlier on. It hindered me being successful down in Delaware, if I'll be truthful. If I'll be truthful. When was Delaware? 93. This is 93, graduated in 1990. So you were in your early 20s at and this point. I was about 18. I was 18, 19. I was with me about a year and a half when I, spent, when I got into college. Okay. Completed that two years, so about 93. So we're in Delaware. When I moved down to Wilmington, Delaware, that's when I was introduced to crack cocaine down there. At this point, how long have you been utilizing marijuana by the time you get 1993? Three years. Three years strong. A very whatever you can get it. Okay. I can smoke blood because I have friends who there I would happen to meet friends who have plenty. At times if I would do a small time dealer, since I was a network guy and my ex-fiance's best friend, he would give put weight on me to go when I was in college mm-hmm. or when I was at work. I was always selling. I always had weed on me. It became it became like a pack of new pork. Me without a blunt. Anyone who knows me to this very day to say Shaw. Without blood, it's like sneakers without laces. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> it really doesn't make sense. Right. Anyone okay. who's known me all my life knows how ingratiating marijuana has been part of what I do, how I am. Sometimes I've sold in great amounts, and other times it's just been straight recreational personal use. Okay. I want to make sense of the timeline again. The woman that was 12 years your senior, was this in the 90s? Okay. Okay. So to give your perspective, we was from, let's say, from 1990 to about 90. So during the relationship, this is also when you were in Delaware? Yes. Is she the one that introduced crack to you or you found that another way? I found it a different avenue, quietly. Was it for yourself or for others? It was actually for myself. It it was my curiosity. Okay. You were curious about what a high would feel like? Yeah, it would feel like I was out of town. Mm. I'm a manager of a sizzler. (laughs) A woman and her kids is in New York. Oh, you had accomplish something. Yeah, I mean, I'm accomplished. I'm, I'm drilling my oats a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. I befriended an individual down there named King. That's his name was King. Richard King, I think his name was. Richard King. Fuck him. Excuse my <laughs> language. Tribe people. You know, one thing you will do is tell on somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I tell the truth. Anyway, <laughs> Richard King and I became friends. Mm-hmm. And he was a waiter in the same restaurant I was a manager. Right. And since I was new in his town in Wilmington, Delaware, I was staying at the YMCA down there. And the YMCA out of town is more like a, a hotel instead of water in New York City. And down there it was actually a little respectable, cheap version of a, a quality and real cheap version. Anyway, since I didn't know the area, it was new. It was my lift from the restaurant. Oh, your ride to and from? To and from work. Anyway, a friend of the guy found that I go with him to hang out one night. And uh, he takes me to his little jaunts in the little streets. And he leaves me in the car for odd number an hour or two. He went to do something real quick. Mm-hmm. So that led to an irate argument. So the next you time. You got upset? Yes, of course. <laughs> a pocketbook or something. <laughs> so he would bring me inside the next time, whatever he was doing. And this time I'm in the living room. He's in the other room, whatever he was doing. You should have stayed in the car. Well, yes. I'd say, yeah. <laughs> But something was going on, so he asked me to borrow money. Okay. So I think it was like a twenty dollars at the time. So I was like, "What was for?" I was like, "No, let me try." I don't know what made me let me try. Whatever. I even did it wrong. A perk, perk my, perk my lips, perk my tongue. Wait. Should even let that stop me. 
the, the way to do the thing, I'm not going to describe it. I'm supposed to do it the way you're supposed to do it, like, like a regular. Right. Pipe. I get it. But for some reason, I must have let it and turned it the wrong way. I stuck it straight in my lips, burnt my lips, whatever. It was so bad. you did the whole thing wrong. wrong. The way that it was supposed to go. Supposed you to did go. the opposite. So the funny thing, that was the first time I was introduced to right. him. The reason why I broke him, brought him up was because of my pursuit of marijuana. Right? Caught him in live what he did. That individual stole. Five hundred dollars from me out of my bag. And that was the first element shown to me of what a person in the age of addiction. I didn't know he was an addict. That was your. You're saying King was a person of, of what a, a functional addict looked like. What a functional addict looked like. That was your first example. Exactly. He had stolen five hundred dollars from me. From me, and no man has ever showed up, pointed a gun to me to that point. Mm-hmm. You understand? I've way. been held at gunpoint. I've been through some He things. took five hundred dollars from you right under your nose? What happened was he had I had left my bag in his car. The evening started with him taking me to catch my check. Okay. I had a hard time but he was in the town down in Wilmington. You catch my check for liquor stores. Really? Yes. Liquor stores. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, oh, that's just that little spot. This this how that city run. If you don't have a major bank, you go to you go to the liquor store with your ID, it cash your check. Anyway, the individual who was on meat cutter at the Stizzler restaurant, mm-hmm. after I cashed my check at the liquor store, I was able to purchase my marijuana. So what I did was throw four bags of weed into my bag and left in the back seat of the car because I was in the front seat. I rolled one bag. We pulled up to his mother's house. Mm-hmm. We into the back. Now, also in the bag, I put my money because I just wanted to cash my check because of weed. I was opening the store the next day. I was opening the store, so... You didn't need to ride home. I didn't need to ride home because we're checking in ride home. Mm-hmm. He said, we just have to stop by his mother's real quick. Okay. We go inside. I go in his room. He runs upstairs. He comes right down and says, look, I got to run to the store real quick. You'll be right here. You give me like 10 minutes. I say, all right, man, you know I got to open the store. It'll be 10 minutes. All right. I end up passing out. Falling asleep? Falling asleep. Mm-hmm. I wake up on his couch. His mother is like, where's, I'm like, where's, I said, Richard King, and it was Charles King. I'm safe still. Richard Charles is the same name. I'm like, where's, where's, where's Charles? I don't know. Man, I'm supposed to have opened the rest. I got no money. What time was it when you woke up? It had to be like 9 o'clock. In the morning? In the morning. Oh, you had fell asleep, fell asleep. From the night prior. I was supposed to be at the restaurant like 6.30 in the morning. So you overslept. I always said I have and no way to get this to. this was your co-worker? He was my employee, technically. Oh. Your employee. And I'm a manager. Where did he go? Where was he? I don't find out where he was until 14 hours later. 14? 14 from the time you slept or from the time you slept? Hours later, when I was at the job. That's how I lost my job. Oh, you got to work late. This is how I lost my job. This is how I learned the truth. (laughs) Oh, my God. This is how I lost my job at Sizzler. He shows up. And mind you, my bag, my coat, everything's in the back of his car. Mm-hmm. So I told my manager, who was my supervisor, who was like training me to hire for them, had to tell him the long story why I don't have my stuff. Uh, my stuff was left in Charles' car. Mm-hmm. I was left at Charles' house. They don't know anything. And that was already in violation. Right. And this was real employees. But the only ride I'm out here from him down here. Charles shows him all I want is my money in my bag. Right. I go to the car. He throws the keys. He's looking at me with this chagrin look on his face. I go to, straight to his car, open the bank door, grab my bag, grab my stuff, uh-huh. come back in, go in the office. Mm-hmm. Because I know there's weed in the bag. We lose all my money. I'm lying to you. What happened? 
I actually bought six packs of weed. Not four? Not four. How you skipped two? No, no, because no. I smoked one. Okay, you had five And left. one fell on the floor. I remembered. One fell on the floor in the car? Oh, in the car. Because when I put the weed in the back seat of the car, the back fell over. And I remember feeling one fall out of my hand. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm just going to make sure to scoop that when I get out the car. Right. I remember having that thought. When I grab the bag mm -hmm. and immediately walk back into the restaurant, I go to the bag. Mm -hmm. I count the bag of the weed. Because there's no money. There's only this bag. Then it dawned on me, the bag I left on the floor. Now how many bags was in the bag? It was in there. Four. You had, oh, so you had, you had a fifth one in the on car. The, in the car. Okay. So my money may be where the bag of weed is. Giving him, I don't say nothing to Charles. Oh, you didn't assume anything yet? Yeah, because I might have dropped it. Mm -hmm. I walked back to the car. The bag of weed is on the floor. Okay. I scooped it. Mm-hmm. So now maybe they had Charles' story. So you're waiting to hear what Charles, what Charles has, has to, to say. For all them hours. He for all that. Where's my stuff? For. And where's my money? So where was he and where's your money? He said he went to the store, runs into a friend. The friend offered him X amount of dollars to run to Philly real quick. To what? Run to Philadelphia. And where was y'all? Delaware. But Wilmington, Delaware, city of Wilmington, sits just 45 minutes outside of Philly. Okay. So it's like running from Long Island to New York City. Sure. Right? But remember, you left he, me. Did he tell you this give is, me 10? No, this is, that was another time. This remember I took you two different times. We hung out. I know what it before when I messed up and got high wrong. Remember I told you? Oh, I know. But what, didn't he say give him 10 minutes? Yeah, oh, you said 10 minutes. I thought you said $10. No, oh, yeah. 10 minutes to run to the store. I fall asleep. He's running to Philadelphia. Which is longer than 10 minutes. But yeah. He just stopped by the police on the highway, he says. And they arrested him. They went oh. something in the car. Whoever had something in the car, they, they were doing, they all got arrested. So the police stopped you. They took your car. They didn't take the weed out of there? Because they would have got him. Excuse they... me, before the next word came out of his mouth. That you know who sense. I am. You know the police. You know who I am, daughter. Mm -hmm. Left, right, foot. Mm -hmm. Knock him Every, out. Knock him out. It, it, I, I had his blood all over me. I was going nuts on him. I was, so he started that story and you weren't having it. I wasn't having it. You were lying. We are straight lying in my face. Logical. This is my first time dealing with an addict. I Anybody didn't know. Nobody know the police would have took, took the weed. You, you wouldn't have been But no he didn't know that's what my truth marker was. He didn't know I dropped that bag. I didn't even inform him. When we had people in the car, no one went. You went through them. You saw where I put my money in the bag. You went mm -hmm. straight to my bag. You figured, like, I need a weed. I don't smoke. He doesn't know smoke weed. So he decided to take your money. Took my money. He, he smoked it. Smoked my money. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, he just saw some crack out himself. He didn't think ahead. Yeah, but that's a stupid lie. It was a stupid lie. I don't lie. even, I don't even see what I It's like, with the cops took my money, you took my money. Now, I gotta tell me. Yeah. I, I have a fiance in New York with three kids. Well, now you have to tell her what just happened. And then you can't even give her money. And I gotta tell her why I lost my job. Cause I beat her dude. I oh, can't. wow. Exactly, look at her fallout. Well, look how consequences. Consequences upon consequences upon consequences. All for looking to go buy a bag of weed that night. Damn. Well, that answers the question. Thank you. <laughs> I don't even feel bad that you knocked his lights out. I can see how if, if you had a moment of pause, it would have led elsewhere. Exactly. However, that was my introduction to both elements. Hard 
which is known as crack. And then when an addict and cold face lies. So you learn more about crack from him as well, right? Oh, it's crazy because. Oh, wow. What invariably happened, Delaware, Wilmington, Delaware became the growth place of my usage. Mm -hmm. Even though I used in New York and from this is unfortunately of the yellow born mm -hmm. that's really jumping ahead. The story you just told was before we were born though, right? Way before you were born. Okay. 93. So I come back to New York, tail tucked between my legs. I live out in the rest, the, you know, relationship dwindles because um, I never really find employment and I never really got back in New York. track with her. After you got fired from Sizzler. Sizzler. It just wasn't a good look all around. Did you um, ever um, incur any like charges from that time? You knocked no. that life out? Only thing I incurred from 93, which affected me the year, the year I thought of you youngins, of you girls. I broke bus window. Bus Why station. are you smiling? <laughs> I hate being so violent. <laughs> <laughs> you broke the bus window for a while. You, you know those big windows in front of an office? I kind of... In front of an office? You know, the in front of the store. You know the, those big plate glass windows. You know, you go into a, um, let's say, like a department store? Like a mask. Any um, store, a regular store. This place was um, with a Greyhound ticket. Oh, like a, like a bus station? Bus station. I walked in the way you walk, you go buy your bus ticket. Okay. And this also is where you, you transacted with um, Western Union down there okay. in Wilmington. And I didn't have ID. I walked from where I was at the YMCA to collect money from when Lee sent me that money. Mm -hmm. It was before I get my check for Western Union. He was sending me down $100 or so. I didn't get my check yet. And I have ID, Wilmington ID, Delaware ID, and an individual on the other side of the glass, obtuse and ignorant and hard. He thought it was hard. And um, he made me walk. I swear, the walk was total two hours of energy back and forth from the hotel. He had a little piece of information. Did it to this guy. Oh, he made you go back to get your ID. And when he did, he said it was closed. Oh, you know, no. Ain't it all bad? I mean, this money, he didn't care. Oh, man, an Uber would have came in handy. And you and Uber. <laughs> and I uh, broke. Oh, you broke the window because he was playing with your. I was like, you know, I can get to you. He ran and called the cops. Oh, my God. I said, wait, what the fuck I was going to do? I didn't do that. I didn't touch him. Right. I paid for it. That's annoying. Cause so, it was, and that's, what happened was they wrote me a ticket and wrote me, and I didn't care. I'm not from here. Every little town. So, you just left anyway. Left it, left them. Left when Lee came and got me. So when I ended up leaving in '96, when y'all were born, was it because of that? Well, not because of that. Those two things. Also, when I came back down to Delaware, it was the only place I knew to run to. I had to leave Huntington, Long Island. Oh yeah. For auspicious reasons, mm -hmm. I cannot state for the. <laughs> Let's leave it my Okay. But I remember you telling me that story. You had gone back to Delaware, but yes. you really couldn't let anyone know you were there. Exactly. You had, I mean, exactly. obviously your tribe listeners don't know this story, but I exactly. do. Exactly. That was on. the period I speak of. So when I went back down, it was because of what I did in 93, I was arrested mm -hmm. in 96 and not in Delaware because I didn't answer their ticket. Consequences. Consequences. Yep. There you go. Consequences. That is. 
I mean, it's funny. You look back on it as a free man and laugh. But yeah, but I know it wasn't funny then. No, it was not. Man came out of blue. It's a blessing that we can chuckle about it. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, but it was it was that lesson period. learned. It was unfortunate that period of time, and um, unfortunate how I came back. Still, still in learn. Nature of addiction was just growing. The beast. At that point. I was down there is when the full breath of smoking the hard. It went beyond marijuana mm-hmm. and became smoking cooked cocaine. Mm-hmm. And cooked cook I never liked sniffing. Sniffing never was I never liked heroin. Did it one time. Thank goodness. Oh, thank goodness. So glad. And that that is a monkey thing. I know that any a drug is a drug is a drug. Right. I I drank early. I drank when I was like 18. And alcohol really didn't stick with you. It never did. I had one one or two blackouts. That was enough. Yeah. Uh, to this day, I have a group of friends who won't talk to me about a night I really don't remember. So alcohol and me and my body never really mix and jive. It's not a thing I do today. Mm-hmm. However, those unfortunately, those two things, um, smoking, marijuana, and um, the other stuff really became a hindrance because it was systematic. I remember in 96, I was an associate of the street, a young lady who was, um, you know, she was a walker. What I mean is, you know, she used her body right. to obtain things. And uh, I remember sitting in a room, it was raining, the August day, and um, she needed somewhere to get in and do her stuff. It was on a soda can, uh, a sunken soda can. And I remember looking at me saying, I should not, you shouldn't be doing that. I was like, man, I'm wrong, man. Please stop it. She was telling you not to do what? She said, to do the stuff, the smoke. The more extreme stuff. Like the hard smoke, you know? Mm-hmm. And I remember the first, I was like, whoa. Because I did it quietly without anyone knowing when I was selling crack in 95. This is right before you were born. Mm-hmm. And I remember what I was doing was making me throw up. Because I, it, it bothered my mind in 95 when I really started to sell big time rich wealthy people who you would not believe money who would give me their men's hair uh uh sure to give me their wives house i was sitting million dollar homes mm-hmm. out in the hamptons for like five days and watch someone smoke up seven thousand dollars worth of crack oh. yes and i sit right there and give it to them happily you know what I mean? I, I, I had an alpha male. Your mother would never tell you. I had an alpha male in Milan. You had who? An alpha male car. Alpha. Romeo. Alpha Romeo. It was a very expensive car. My partner had a black saw. Mm-hmm. This was back in 95. Red, two-door. No, I don't really, your mother never really seen me drive it. To be honest, I kind of hate it from her. Yes. <laughs> I hate to say that. You'll oh. <laughs> never hear this, but <laughs> I, I, I remember now because I was making a division. Actually, it was the birth of you girls who made me sit back for I didn't know she was pregnant really when I went to jail. Mm-hmm. I came home, ready to inspect to be kicked out. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's when she was like, you know, I'm six months pregnant. So in 95, when I was sold and I was witnessing these people use them. So at this point in 1995, you had transitioned from just recreational use of marijuana and, and actually like kind of dive into heavier use of stronger substances. Yes, I, I accepted street life. Selling, selling, selling and using. And I, I accept, I saw money because- So money was, was a- um, A trigger because- A trigger? Yes, because I was not making any money working the average nine to five. When I met your mother, I was really just coming off of welfare and I really didn't have a job. So when I met your mother in Huntington, I was living in Wyandotte, I took advantage of the environment. 
through your mother's friend, Colette, she was able to sneak me an application and get me a job at Bed Bath & Beyond mm-hmm. at Walmart Mall. Is that, is that what would mask, you know, what you were really doing? Yeah, Did well, you? at the beginning, I, I was going at this altruistically honest. Oh, like straight and narrow. Like we're trying to do the Joe thing. We're just trying to narrow the thing. I met your mother. It was a new relationship. This was I, after Delaware. This is back up here. after Delaware. No one, all that stuff is quiet. Acting like it never happened. Never happened. <laughs> you know, never happened. Leave. You were just trying to get back into society. Get into society. Get, I got a fresh start. I got a fresh start. You I'm really, over you here. really tried your best. How did you wind up marrying both the past and that present? You know, when it came to the drugs. Your mother. I was actually about to say your um, mother. I know I get that. I was actually, I was about to ask you. Um, was it that even though your perspective changed, but your circle didn't? Because you know sometimes you got to change everything to start. Well, touching. remember the odd thing is, even though I experimented on cocaine down in Delaware, when I came back to New York and I separated from me and I, relationship ended. Mm-hmm. I went through a period of homelessness, and even though I used my wife, I never used, I never used the cocaine. I never touched it. Even though I was, I was around it because I was in the homeless situation and winding, even though people in the house were doing it, mm-hmm. I it was such a connotation added to it that I was like, yeah, no, no, I don't really catch me doing that. Mm-hmm. I was, it was okay to smoke weed. So I would just smoke heavy amounts of weed. Mm-hmm. I met your sister's namesake, Ben, Nyree, in that period. But when I met your mother, in between there, Nyree was the call. I moved to Huntington to your mother. And mind you, it's never in my face. When I met Colette, my Colette's husband, Rob, Rob was selling. Rob and Rob's brother so hard. Colette was a friend of my mother's. Best friend. So you're husband. saying you're, you meeting my mom led to you connecting with other people who also dealt with Dealt with crap. Okay. So it was never in my face until I met your mother. And then, then when Rob sold. Well, there's something that can be said about that. You know, when we talk about retrospectively uh, the universe and how you attract things. Well, maybe, maybe secretly I wanted to be in that environment. It was weird because when I mentioned it, I never knew she did it. Someone that could mask it really well. Very well, because I never knew she did. What are the kind of things that make people wake up and realize that they have a problem? I would say, without speaking too much about my own mother, but I do know that when my sister and I came along, it's like bells went off in her head and things changed. And I don't know an experience of having uh, a mom addicted to anything beyond recreational use of cigarettes. So for you, the birth of your twin daughters you're saying was not something that took you off of your addiction or your lifestyle what was it that woke you up or are you still well to be honest with you to this day it's still a battle mm-hmm. however my final really like saying like okay i'm gonna be honest actually when i got out of prison the second time which was what year june 8th of 2017. When I was 21. Because wow. I was in a home. Um, I mean, by then. Like, well, you would think, even after doing time, after all that time. It's over two decades of my life. I went in, 98, got on the two. Yeah, went in, in that, that was That was when you figured it out? Well, what I'm saying is that I had a near-death experience. What was your near-death experience? Well, I was um, smoking in a um, the room provided to me through the shelter, um, as you matriculate through the system. Were you out of prison at this time? Yeah, it was on parole. It was on parole. Got out. It was about late September of that year. 2017? Yeah. This September, October. It was right before I went into Phoenix House. I remember thinking, I need to, I need to stop. Because... You need I, to stop what? Stop hurting myself. 
because it became not you no more. Your, your sister, my mother, I didn't have a woman to speak of. Nothing really mattered to me at that point. Who was going to give a fuck about me? You just had a weight on your shoulders? Yeah, it, it just unbelievable. What did you do? Um, well, you know, because I had smoked and I remember standing there and the dude laying in the bed. And I remember thinking, if I had a heart attack right now and died and I fell out, would this dude even go call it? Go not one or he'd be too scared and run. Mm-hmm. And they'll find my body, like, you know what I mean? I was like, man, no. Nah. It's pretty dark. So on the bed, the, the phone just happened to be frozen for some odd reason on the save screen at Phoenix House. And I called it. And I'm going, I'm just going to get myself 100% shot. It's not for nobody. It wasn't for you. Mm-hmm. It wasn't for your sister. It wasn't for nobody. It was for me to really look at me, deal with the real me, and just get it over with. Get whatever I'm running from over with. When you say near death experience, uh, I felt I took a blind. I felt like my heart jumped on my chest. It was laying on the floor. You were I couldn't feel you were smoking at the time, but yeah. you didn't feel right. I didn't feel right at all. I, I said if I make it through this feeling, like I thought my chest was gonna explode, like my pulse was racing, I was sweating profusely. It was crazy. Standing there, this dude was passed out. No one knew he was standing there like this. No. Nobody. No one feels you like, oh I felt him when he went. I felt no one knew shit. <laughs> and, you know. Honestly, this is the first I'm hearing about this. Like I said, some stuff is I'm not proud to say. It's not a it's not a good space to be in. But that was your light bulb moment, mm. you would say. And, and but it wasn't because, not, at, at first when I asked you, I thought you were trying to say it was when I got to be about 21 years of age when you realized it. But you're actually saying, I just so, that just so happened to be the 21st year of my life, that something took place in you and your decision, I mean, albeit you were afraid of something and it and it led to you making that decision your own i have to say though i've never questioned why you went to phoenix house i've never asked you when i was 21 and from my perspective i thought it was just something you had to do but i never really questioned the thought process around it and up until recently in life i've never really analyzed what addiction has been like for you and it in many different aspects yes and it's a learning, it's a learning thing. Like, mm-hmm. I tell, like I said earlier, that's why I said it's hard for me to quantify it. Because as of today, I'm still learning how to live with it, deal with it. I'm still on parole. I still deal with it in my relationships. I still deal privately. I have to very much be aware of who and who I'm talking to and who I'm around. Right. What are some permanent habits or behaviorisms that have just become part of you that you just can't shake? I'm always the last to go to sleep. I would never sit with my back to a door. There will always be some type of light in the room with me. Money. You mean your handling of money? Handling of money. I had to think of it differently instead of it in units. Okay. When I... How so? When I used to get paid, it used to be blocks. Uh, let's say, okay, let's say scrapping. If I made two hundred dollars, I would say, I would say one sixty. I look at it as two eight balls. That's me with forty dollars for cigarettes, lighter or whatever, and I still got twenty dollars for. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's how you look at money to this day. It's blocked. It's in blocks. It's not. But the blocks have changed. Yeah, the blocks has changed now. So, so now it's like light bill. Yeah, <laughs> light bill, phone bill. Sneakers. Sneakers, <laughs> <Your> daughter. <laughs> like food. That's actually a pretty um, interesting way to look at money. You know, I guess and, you could say it has helped your budgeting. I have institutions. I don't, I don't have it under my mattress, under my sneaker, mm-hmm. under my back of my wallet. Mm-hmm. It's different. 
your money's in ones and zeros now. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I want to take a step back again. Okay. Uh, this is a, a interesting question. I'm curious about how you feel about this, but we talked about how some of your actions led to certain consequences. You gave us two really good examples, albeit comical, but still real life. Do you have any regrets on embarking on this road since your youth? Obviously, it wasn't something you just woke up at 12 and said, I'm going to be, do you regret um, anything? The honest part of it is to say that I'm a real person, as real as a man, father, mm-hmm. somewhat as I understand it. No, because I can say that stuff has helped me be as real to you as has anything you have ever, I'm hoping, ever felt, as I have ever had in my life. You and I had a conversation on the phone a few days ago where we talked about all the bad that you can say we, you know, objectively say and subjectively say we experience in our own respective lives. We, you said something interesting where, you know, you take the bad, but then you always see there's a bit of good at what has come out in a way. And I said, with what you experienced from your childhood that has impacted my upbringing in many ways, I'm almost grateful for the things that had happened to you for I wouldn't be here. You know, in other ways, it's almost a weird way of looking at it. Where it's like, would you take it back? The only thing I would do differently is be more honest with your mother. Mm-hmm. The only thing I would change. Right. Your mother deserves More honesty. From me. That is the only thing. That is the only truth. That, and short of that, no. Because it helped me be more truthful to you with you, with your sister, and help me be a real person. We're, I don't know, I might have done better. Who knows? Who knows? I know that I can recognize today that I don't mind being better. I can say that today. And you can always get better. The point is to accept and acknowledge it. And I've accepted and acknowledged all my failures. But that's a different thinking from going through all the pain that I didn't try to inflict the pain that was given on me onto others. Right. To others. It affected you in a different way. It affects me. It allowed me to be in presence of anger. It allowed me to be in presence of danger. When things are happening, I am able to respond differently than a lot of people around me. It is amazing. If there was a gunshot up, I knew how to move you, and how to respond, and how to talk. I gave you an example of when you said how it affects me and dealing. Imagine being in a, a satellite. A satellite is an area where you have multiple people getting high. Mm-hmm. The satellite being up in the sky, your brains are off this planet. Mm-hmm. So you got like eight or nine people in an apartment. They own stuff, different variations of crack cocaine getting high. Been up for four or five days. Mm-hmm. It's a shit house in there. I've been in there, I'm in there day four, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I'm, I'm thinking I'm cool. I don't know, there's a banging on the door. This is the worst time to have a banging on the door when there's been no call for no more stuff. There's no one expecting it's out of the element. So it's like, ah! everyone's freaking out. Everyone's freaking out. I remain calm. Mm-hmm. The worst thing is I hate when someone runs door to door. That's point of entry. My brain goes to automatic schematics, entry points. How to get out. How to get out. What's my fail safe? Front window. Who's coming in? Listening. Who's actually talking? Pay attention. All my senses become alive. Mine it was up for four days. This is in a box. And you story. were still alert enough. Still alert enough. To stay calm. However, what happened? Three young individuals entered the apartment, guns out. Were that, was it enforcement? What was it? Regular three punks from the corner, three kids. Just showed up. Mask on, and this is not COVID. This is, mm-hmm. this is some odd years ago. They come from the apartment, one cuts the door, everyone's rushing into the living room. Hands up, I made it turn around, 
I remained calm. My palms is out. As everyone's talking, screaming, I noticed no one's going to have the whole situation. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking to the most dominant body, my, my senses. He's the alpha. Holler, son, slow down. Witnesses, talk to me. Who you need? Got him. See? Help them focus. You just helped them get what they needed. They weren't so trying now, to come in there and hurt everybody. They were in looking for I'm something. looking at Moby. They didn't shoot right away. Mm-hmm. They didn't hit right away. They were these are elements that speak to you right away. This you know what to do. When there's a gunshot, you know what to do. But they're not shooting. Well, the average person doesn't know what to do. Well, you're right. Fight or flight. Mm-hmm. You're right. Mm-hmm. But I read the signs real quickly. They didn't shoot nobody, they're not hitting the gathering. Quick, they need information. Give it, get them out of here. That's all it is. I know what's going on. Who you need? So then we're looking for this what happened. Person who left this apartment, went to another apartment, got beat by their boyfriend. It was just, it was rumored that the boyfriend had made it to this apartment we were in. These individuals, the young lady buys drugs from them. So the, per- so the person they were looking for is someone who had abused their girlfriend. The girlfriend. The girlfriend buys drugs from the three. So, so they were taken care of. Whatever element they were trying to be the bravado for them. He the, happened to be in that house. No, he happened to be nowhere around. The oh. rumor was he ended up into this apartment. Oh, okay. But since these people, not even the owners of the apartment, can speak up for themselves, they're too, in, they're too stuck. Too gone, yeah. I was able to still speak. I was still able to handle this. Y'all situation. were almost collateral damage. They were. I was. <laughs> they were. <laughs> Young lady, I told you, I was witness to violence since I was little. Even before I even finished high school, I was robbed at Wendy's at gunpoint. These are like survival skills you've, you've acquired. Through all the things you've been through. Yeah. What were you saying, Liam Neeson? Yeah, Liam Neeson says I'm taking. I've acquired a, a number of skills over a number of years. Mm-hmm. That may be a problem for people like you. This is one of them. Well, this is one of the things that I've amassed. Well, I understand from your story that there's more than one version of you, individual you were then versus, <laughs> versus now. And I, I kind of want to know if you were in the room with yourself at, let's say, 20 years old, what is it that you would tell yourself? <sighs> wow. That would say about 1992. The 20-year-old version of yourself walked in the room. What would you say? Get out of the relationship. Walk away from me. If it was at all possible, given what was afforded to me then in 92, honestly, I would have tried to talk myself into becoming either a CEO. A corrections officer. A corrections officer. Or really dive into getting a, a discernible skill set. Meaning, I noticed that those would have paid dividends later. Like, I didn't know how much of an economic will, the environment I was learning in, but I had to give me time to think for myself. You didn't give time to think for yourself. I was always felt that I was emotional, immature. I was reactionary. So even though I was in a 19, 20 year old body, mm-hmm. I was still 13, 14 years old in mind. You're expressing an arrested development. Exactly. So I needed that to go catch up. So if I'm in trade, it's giving time for my emotional to catch up with some assets I've admired over two decades, made a better choice as being a man, pay attention to my feelings, and then been a better father, possibly. 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 That was the moment where the life choices I was making. Was you had a down. clear path of where you could have gone. Because I went to leave. Mm-hmm. And leave is where I hid and, you know, Your try to stay safe. Foundation and not go to itself and pay attention. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not focusing on you. Other things were being instituted on me that I want to speak on right now mm-hmm. that affected me in prison and years later. What are some words or 
a phrase or something you wish you would have heard at any stage in your life before I would say your life went on the deep end when things got serious and darker? Uh, you know, Is there something you, that you always I, wish you knew or yeah, encouragement? The, the hardest thing for a young black man is purpose. Mm -hmm. I never felt I had purpose. I never knew what my purpose was. Even in, as a child, as a, a child, teenager. I, I would run a joke at individuals. I was, a, I was very bright. I would say to individuals, either whatever service I was, waitering or valet, they would say to me, you're a bright young man. You're going to be somebody. No one had any real interest. And I was like, do you know what I want to be? No one knew. Everyone laughs at that. Same how you laugh. <laughs> no one had It's the funniest thing to say that to somebody, but I didn't know. Right. How, yeah. And how could you? I, what examples I did you have? I wanted to be a warrior. I wanted to be a boxer. You be whatever you wanted to be. I wanted to be a fighter player. I wanted to know how buildings were made. I wanted to know everything. But no one sat down with me and said, you can do this. And did you know was, you, can, you can travel over here? Did you know that this was this? That money was this? And that this is your real existence? And this is who you really are? And you must pay attention to this? Because these are why no one said that, which I should have done with you. I don't realize this till I'm reading your letters to me on how you're figuring out the element of going into LIM. Mm -hmm. um, leaving the house, simple getting to work every day. All these things that I'm seeing, I'm sitting in prison. Time and space of thinking now. Going, oh my God, no one told me this shit. I don't have time to tell her this shit. Mm -hmm. And I'm just figuring out this shit myself. Mm -hmm. I get the mistake in that. Right. I get it. But that's what, that's the hard thing to tell the young man in me in 92. That was the point of my uncle, who is not his responsibility, he's not my father. Another point about me meeting a millionaire. Remember I told you I didn't capitalize at that meeting? Mm -hmm. When I met him, I was in, this was right before I went into my bed in 98. I asked my uncle. I remember this story. Yeah, remember you had an opportunity to meet the guy. To sit down with a millionaire and discuss. What I wanted to do. Yeah, or the prospect of your career. And how old were you at this time? I was, this is 98, so this is. So you were like what? 26. 26? Yeah, 26. But what got in the way? Vision. Well, no it plan. was your your uncle told him exactly. something, right? Like he or didn't did have a job did. washing buses. He told him. He told the individual. The individual didn't make the phone call. He gave him an uninspired, an uninspired outcome for me. He all he said was, "Why am I leading this guy to something he can do for himself?" It could be your own people that it wasn't like if I was starting my own charter company. It wasn't that I was. But you didn't even know that's what he had said. Yeah, I didn't even understand the nature of the individual in front of me or the power extent. So if you could go back, that's something else you would have told yourself. I would never put my future in another person's hand ever again. And, and you and I both know how dangerous that could be, especially when you know in your heart that you're meant for something. Now, you gotta listen to what you need. Now, the truth to you is for a great deal of my life. Mm -hmm. I did not know what I was meant to do. You just let the world decide for you? That time and space. And that's, and that's what you, what, that's true actually. I came across a quote that if, if you don't make a decision, somebody else will. And that's a fact. And I was living my life according to what was happening around you. The social, economic need I needed at that particular time. Mm, whatever you thought was going to be fulfilled. <laughs> fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Be it I needed housing, a woman, clothing, drugs, whatever. Nevertheless, I had the power. The whole time. The whole time. So you control your reality. The whole time. And Everyone this, has that weakening at some point. And this is what I, this is why they say wherever the mind goes, the body follows. Mm -hmm. And it dawned on me, I'm having what I want right now. Mm -hmm. 
You're here. Tribe listeners, I'm sitting with my dad in his living room having this conversation. And he has his own place. He's not in a shelter. He's not playing bars writing a letter. No. He's safe. He's a free man. And he's just to telling his story. Yeah, to some extent. Yes. Yeah. No. When, I, when, I, when I was 15 years old, I, I called you outside of the high school and I was really angry. Mm-hmm. Because you were probably in the streets doing God knows what, and you didn't have a place to call your own. There was no place. I couldn't come visit you. Actually, to be honest with you, my dear, I was sleeping at your 15. I was in Midtown. I remember you were 15. You were in the city at the time. In the city. Right when we went to college, right? Midtown, whole area. Well, at 15, I wasn't in college. No, I was in Chelsea area while you was 15 years old. That's what I'm trying to tell you. What's so odd is by the time you went to college, I'm walking around with you. I'm like, you were just there. Years ago, I was just cutting through here in 2009. I was just cutting through here. I, was, I remember walking. Where were you living at? In my street. I thought I was stuck going on. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not a... It's not funny, but like... It's not a thing I'm, I'm proud of at all. But when I tell you, that's why it makes me real talking to people. It makes me laugh. Just because I slept there. Just because I did those things. That's not who I am. Mm-hmm. It's not. Because I can do that. Can you... Can you walk in the dining room and come out clean? I mean, when you hit rock bottom, you really, it, it removes that fear of a lot of things. I have no fear of not having money. Like, I can honestly say the same. Not in the same extent, but for two and a half years of my life, it was the first time I was without any type of job, any type of consistent income that I earned. And I had to go through college and navigate the earlier, earlier part of my 20s just like struggling sometimes, being hungry at the next. It got to the point where the pandemic started and I got to the point where I hit rock bottom so hard that to this day, if my bank account was at zero, I wouldn't give a fuck. Because once you know what it's like to have nothing in any in any category of your life, no love, no money, no opportunity, no food. If you know what it's like to go without, you definitely, in a weird way, develop some type of uh, exterior. Amen. I, I hate it for you to learn a lesson that way. Mm-hmm. It really bothers me. That's the adverse lesson of an addict. Mm-hmm. You learn from an addicted father. However, grateful your ears are open. Right. And hopefully your sisters. That's the truth of the matter. That's actually where I wanted to dive into now as your role as a parent. Talk a little bit about your life then versus now. Let's go back to when I was about eight years old. Wow. Good point. And the type of dad that you were then, or, you know, starting to have some type of blossom in your relationship with me and Shay. Yeah. Versus now. What's the, wow, big difference. And what Big way? difference. Big difference. Back then it was ego. Ego, pride. Um. What type of man was Ivan? Wow. I was 30. Mm-hmm. Fresh out. Fresh out of prison. Very hopeful though. Man, so I had a plan. Didn't know how quiet that little drug did, that little addict was sitting right off to the side of me because it was 2005 when it kicked up again. Because when you when you were eight, when I came home, I really said to myself, I'm going to do this right. I'm going to get my daughters, their mother can reject me. It's not about the mother, it's about the girls. And I'm going to do everything I can Possibly, no matter what it takes to be around the girls. Ignore the animal. I'm going to be a human. <laughs> Wait, sorry, human. As if like, 
That's because I didn't think I was. I just know in this moment, if Corinne was here, she'd crack up when you said that. <laughs> because I didn't think since I was, because I was messing up. This you were like, I'm going to be regular. <laughs> I'm going to be regular. I guess that's what regular humans do. <laughs> so I embarked on this journey and um, it felt miserable. What did you do wrong? It just wasn't being honest with me. I should never try to move in with your mother because I wasn't ready because she was looking for a relationship and a man. And financial stability. And financial stability. And I didn't have any money. Mm -hmm. And then when I started making money, it was peanuts. And she had me sleeping on a Florida den at a house in Little Brain Place. And I felt some type of way about that. Like I was a dog. Mm -hmm. And um, it was just all this socioeconomic status built around a falsehood that I really didn't want her, I wanted y'all. And out of fake being liking everyone around her, and I wasn't liking me. Mm-hmm. And it just became more and more and more angrier. That prevented me from ever feeling anything from anybody, having any empathy or even caring. So. And that's, I will say, to jump in at my perspective, yeah. what my doubt was at years old, I didn't understand those things. I didn't have the vocabulary or the knowledge of what that even looks like. So you have to imagine to a child who just wants to have her daddy and to love him and to be happy and to, to be happy that he's there. I kept having this idealistic view of what it was like to have a dad. And as, as great as I thought you were, most of the time, I didn't hate you. I was afraid of who you were. I told you this recently, actually. I was very scared of you because to me, you were an angry man and you represented violence to me. And while you never physically hit me, it was your voice and your body language and your aggressive, the way you would jump, the way you would move so hard. That really rocked me a lot. And sometimes with my uh, my sister, the way you handled her, because you didn't understand her in many different ways. And again, the arrested development, the anxiety, all the inner inward issues you were battling translated to what we didn't understand and it looked very violent to me very scary i have memories of asking you questions and i was afraid to be open about things because you would just react quickly you'd get up fast and like make me think that you're gonna harm me and there was there was times where i just didn't like you and in those moments whenever mom was having an issue with you which i never understood what the issues were i would be i feel safer under her wing because all I knew is, oh my God, I don't know if he's gonna hit me or or what. But then all I remember wanting was to have you in my life, to be able to call you my dad, but I was always afraid of what you were gonna say, what you were gonna do. And I have to be honest, I was a child. What, what know. you know, what? how you call yourself, I, 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 in what, what way could a parent and a child be equals? That's all, it, you know what I mean? To cut you off. Yeah. And honestly, you know, today I can say I can I would have definitely, definitely, would, you would not have seen things that our eight-year-olds are not supposed to see. I really wish that I and had this version that, of you then. That knowing that you are more felt protected mm-hmm. than feared. I never put my hands physically on you, lady, on you girls. You thought that was enough? I thought I wasn't abusing you because mm-hmm. my mother or anyone that disciplined me mm-hmm. put their hands on me. But I felt I can convey the same fear of stopping 
just with body movement to girls, you know, a guy, that that would have been enough to stop whatever thing was going on. But maturely now looking at it, to have girls fear a black man, mm-hmm. the first representation of a man. Seriously, yeah. I did not understand then how important that is. At this point, I didn't realize that I was experiencing the consequences of, of addiction compiled with other layers of problems, but- The consequences I, of me not being at home. It wasn't like I ever would wake up or come home from school and see you just smoking. Like no. I just never did. And I, I realized that even still that was relevant because it affected your interpersonal relationships, gave you the inability to be the parent that you didn't know at the time that we needed. Do you have any advice for like 20 something year old Ivan? I wanna go through it. She's gonna be tough. You don't have to stay here. But I gave myself, make sure that knowing you, knowing how important you two are, mm-hmm. and still are, I would say just, Whatever you do, make sure they understood. Because mm-hmm. I think you would have tolerated anything as long as y'all two knew mm-hmm. that you had a real dad. Right, and I don't think I knew like, that. I can say, when I look at you, I see two different people. Like, I don't see him no more. And I don't know if that actually came from where I became more aggressive. I remember knowing only small bits of you and being so afraid of recreating any of your negativity, especially your anger. Growing up, I remember fighting a lot with kids and getting into physical brawls. I was very energetic, active kid. And I I actually got in a fight and I, I beat up two other kids defending my niece when she was two years old. And that was the earliest sign that the lady threatened to call the police on me. But in that moment, I all I thought about was you. And I was so mad at 12 years old. I said, I never want to be anything like that man because to do so, I'd certainly end up in prison. And I didn't want to be like you. I didn't want to go to jail. Like I was so terrified. And who knows? The woman probably wasn't going to call the cops on me. But there's enough to scare a 12 year old and you know, a lot of people are afraid of repeating their parents' mistakes and they're so afraid of it and they make all these choices that ironically end up making them just like their parents. Getting off of this topic for a second, Demi Lovato is an amazing songstress, actress, everything. She recently just released a documentary called Dancing with the Devil, struggle with addiction, self-control, her weight, her public image. She is the daughter of an addict's father. She worked so hard to be nothing like him. Ironically, unfortunately, overdosed. Really? Mm-hmm. And in 2018, I would say, she survived it, but within an inch of her life. And right now she's releasing her documentary talk about it. And I think about that and I've worked so hard. I've curbed every temptation and I struggle even with being angry. I even kept myself from being physically sh- strong so that I wouldn't even exert myself on other people if I felt necessary. I wanted to interject here two points. One, right there, the point of when we came home, when we your effort right before you graduated FIT. Then we had the conversation in the coffee shop. Because I wanted you to be aware that you are walking around with a gene. You and your sister. It dawned on me that I had to celebrate the conversation because I knew you were heading out there. And pausing again, it reminded me, one, I want to thank you for making aware of, I took so much pride that I never put my hands on it. I didn't know I was still being abusive. And I didn't know abuse can take on many forms, many, many forms, even more than what they say. Because mm-hmm. I, I I, was, since being a child of abuse and that nature, even though we're not bringing that up here, mm-hmm. 
it still was part of the element hidden within my addictive nature that I didn't know that was who I was. Mm-hmm. I was so addicted to being that person that I was so fearful of letting anybody in. So I'm gonna pause and say thank you for telling me that because it made me pay attention. Mm-hmm. But two, I had also made fear for you because learning about addiction, learning about nature, learning about it, I realized the gene was in my, my body because of my mother and my father. Mm-hmm. You know, my father was an addict. My mother's a quiet addict. They don't want you to be in a cocktail party. They can arrive out of nowhere. They can arrive in your work habit. They can arrive in your recreation. They can arrive in your sleep. You can become addicted to anything. Anything. I'm grateful to this day, talking to you, mm-hmm. that so far, all the things you've experienced, that you're finding healthy vehicles so far mm-hmm. to work it through. You may not have worked it all out. You still right. might have some stuff to do. But the easy knee-jerk reaction one would normally take, I have not seen you be. That's the only thing I have in my heart. That like, you find the thing and be like, oh, this is it, gravitate to it. Because that's the, the crutch that my, your, your family legacy. It's genetic. It's, it's down. I hate when people tell someone that they see someone that's smoking crack or someone that's on dope. They're like, why you just don't stop? When he, don't you see he lost everything or she lost everything? I'm like, well, would you say that to someone right now who's sitting there with a chemo machine mm-hmm. and ain't dying? He's not gonna die until probably five years from now, but he's on that chemo right now. Mm-hmm. You gonna curse him out? It's, it's unfortunate. Right, right. I tell myself, don't fall in love with an addict. <laughs> But unfortunately, like this COVID, Mm -hmm. it's everywhere. I can't believe that in this moment, I've never even verbally expressed how I'm so happy of who you are now. And I've never outwardly forgave the old dad. I never forgave him, but I never focused on him anymore. No, because? Because he was always a boogeyman. Yeah, he was a boogeyman. And sometimes I would look at you and just be like, is he gonna, is he gonna just start no, tweaking? No, give me wrong. You know what I mean? Give me wrong. I tell everybody. <laughs> you know, tell you, and bring me back to when I was eight years old. I tell you, it can, it can, it can rear his head. It can rear his head tonight. It can rear his head oh, five years from now. I don't know. I don't go here and ponder the thought. I wasn't dealing with you as a high person. I was dealing with a symptom of your addiction, which could have been your behavior. No, no, see now, that's the key point I'm glad you brought up. You see someone high, right? that's already effects. Right. That's already, it's already too late. It's already too late. You're already dealing with the symptoms. Mm-hmm. The, but the I, cause. But the child don't know that. The, the, you don't know that. Even the addict don't know that. The real cause is the thinking. It's in the brain. Mm-hmm. It's in my mind. It's, it's, it's been harboring for whatever period of time, and it, you're trying to work it out. You're trying to push it over here. You're trying to make it sense. It's not. And it's just not making sense. It's just no one has an answer for the mind. If I go silent, if I do things, I tell people the warning signs that help me be in my business. Mm-hmm. And then if I do mess up, if I do, I know that no matter what I'm dealing with, no matter how I look, no matter what I have, mm-hmm. I'm yours. You got to be honest. With I'm yourself. yours. That's I'm yours. Right. Whatever that is, I'm yours. Mm-hmm. You snatch me in. And that's the honesty I needed. I didn't know I had to be that honesty to get that honesty. Yeah. I mean, when you finally face yourself. Well, yeah. And that was the biggest thing to be in prison. Pretty, pretty scary. Yeah, it's pretty scary. Do you believe in the ability of the system set in place that are meant to help others? And also, with that, do you have any advice for other people? What advice do you have for other okay. people? To clarify, the system to put in place to help others. What do you mean? What system? Systems as in programs, positive reinforcements, negative reinforcement, the justice system, 
Do you okay. believe in any of that? Because a lot of times I would say I've heard those who have addiction issues or who want to change, unless it's innately within you and you want to make that choice now because of someone else, you're never going to quit it. That's a fact. The scientific method would be, real quick, is to take the group addicts and let them burn out. Take yeah. the who? The group addicts, whatever they do, go and let them burn out. Mm-hmm. Out of that, whoever wakes up and comes back and wants to be over here, it's going to be such a physical movement. It's going to be earned mm-hmm. because that answers the question of who wants it. Right. The physical. Because unfortunately, as you just told me, in the end, the question there's no answer, there's no cure. Mm-hmm. You're never going to be. Mm-hmm. The systems you said to put in place. I do not believe the criminal justice system answers correctly the addict because the person being arrested for possession is not a drug dealer. Right. It's using. You got caught like someone getting caught with a can of beer. They use it. Mm-hmm. They've changed their physiological makeup of who they are. Physiological. Physiological makeup, thank God for this, of who they are. Mm-hmm. So, since that is so, you cannot expect this person to now conform in a natural sense when they have changed. Their mind has changed, their computer's changed. Unless the individual pulls himself out, as you just said. He's going to be stuck. He's going to be stuck as much as I want for you. So we understand how we nurture the mind to know that you're okay. He's able to breathe, create, function, live, the body will follow in that In behavior. spite of everything. The system's in place, they're failing. Yes, for sure. They're failing. I would agree. They're failing. There's no, the war on drugs, they create more. They create more addicts. You want addicts. It's, yeah, it's become a business. It's a business. I want to open up on rehab. I might as well bring them on in here. As long as you keep them busy, you're good. Now you want dope fiends. That's where the money is. That's where the money is. I work for drug programs. They don't, they don't really care if you're on crack cocaine. It's really not money. They need chemically dependent people. They literally need you to be addicted to because, keep these facilities running. Because the state It's so them. dark when you think about it. It does. It is a sick, a sick system. That's what I told you. It's like we if you don't cop, correct, there's no crime. If you don't correct the nature of the individual. Today, I'm glad I'm aware. I'm glad too. I'm glad we've had this conversation. To wrap, I just wanted to share with you what, before we prepared for this interview, we're kind of excited to hear. <laughs> but um, New York Times article, which was just released yesterday on March 25th, it says New York reaches a deal to legalize recreational marijuana. Just on that title alone, how do you feel? I knew it was coming. Do you feel kind of like, Damn, they should have been did this. You know how I, what I mean? Well, because we all, because actually, tribe listeners, season one, Corinne and I first started our entire show, just aimed on the focus on cannabis and legalization of marijuana. That was really how we launched the, the show, and it's okay. it's it's pivoted in another way. We still care very much about this, but we sort of. We kind of focus more inwardly now, but this is something our show is always super supportive of. And Dad, you're one of the reasons why this podcast exists. Wow. I don't think you knew that, but no, it's, I did. No, it's I definitely did. something I expressed in my classes at FIT that, well, you know, the <laughs> tribe, tribe exists. I mean, this is a consequence of. Well, it is a tribe. We are part of a tribe. That's a fact. And unfortunately, tribalism does rule this country. <laughs> That's another important fact. However, getting on what you said about the topic of uh, marijuana recreational recreational use. $4.2 billion industry. I already knew that. That's an underestimation. I knew in Colorado years ago when they legalized it. I told everyone out at the time, tribe, I was incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And when I saw the money generated in the first month, Colorado did it. Mm -hmm. 
I said, New York City is going to do it within the next five years. Mm-hmm. It is just, it's just a money maker. They, sh- they should have been done this. Mm-hmm. Marijuana should never have been placed on class, whatever, class A. What is it? Class A1? Class 1. Class 1A or whatever, drug use. Drug, it's not. It's a it's, it's really not. Yeah. It's really not. It's the tax dollars they're going to pull off mm-hmm. now, the individual. How many of our brothers and sisters are still behind bars? You know, do they get released? Unless they repeal the statute and incarcerate these individuals, unlike in other states, New York State is the empire state. It's not necessarily mean they're going to follow in that manner. Probably say we're going to keep one and let them have the other. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, which means now you don't have to be stopped just for having marijuana in a zip bag, which is good now. Now they legally the right DUI tickets for marijuana now, because you can't smoke it dry. You understand? Mm-hmm. It still becomes a fiduciary money maker for them. They, they, it still becomes a vehicle for them. Yeah. So they're not stupid. The addict is still going to be an addict. The people are still going to be people, just like beer. They took mm-hmm. beer off the street, they took it out. People made speakeasies and all these other institutions. They brought it back, realized that was the money maker. Watch the board of Super Bowl. In the next 10 years, in the Super Bowl will be the Green Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> this bud for you, for real. <laughs> it's going to be more the little CBD brownie. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's kind of ironic for Cuomo. It's a little funny for me because there's two things I wanted to talk about briefly here. One is that he was long opposed to legalization of, of marijuana, you know, because he called it a gateway drug. And he, he had to. He had to. He had presidency. You mind. know, it's political, really. Again, Even yeah. though I think in that same breath, he was aware of the potential tax The other thing I, you and I were talking about before this, before we started recording was I speculated that this is coming at the perfect convenient time amidst all these um, allegations of sexual assault and also with mishandling based out of nursing homes. So this huge bill, which is supposed to be, well, deal, this huge deal, it's definitely a distraction, although it's been in talks for many years now, and um, apparently it was a high priority of his. But I, it just makes me wonder, like, hmm, March in the midst of all these accusations, because you could have been talking about this back in like September, but you know, we just waited the pandemic and then 2021, and now we got a new president, and all of a sudden it's not yay Cuomo, it's mm, Cuomo a little sus. And then he throws this out here and pushes this up on the agenda. Is this going to overshadow the darker, more deep-seated other conversations that still should be just as important? What do you think? Unfortunately, Cuomo stepped on the wrong Republican toe. I say that because he was the golden boy for the next presidency. And when he stepped on the toe, that's when the women came out. What toe did he step on? Unfortunately, we don't know. Um, so someone, somebody got the feeling. Someone got their feelings hurt, and they said, "You know what? We want to embarrass you. We got a black girl coming for your seat. Mm-hmm. Alina James is coming. Mm-hmm. You know that. Mm-hmm. She's coming for that seat, mm-hmm. and you think you're bigger than us. So we're going to show you how we do with everybody in this game. Yep. What the old woman? Oh, you didn't think you touched anybody? Let me call up this one, Exhibit A, Exhibit B. He's probably in his in political life. The average mind only has about maybe two days of memory. So with that being said, mm-hmm. it's the old dog and pony show. I call it Wag the Dog. I don't blame the guy. 
As I said to you, the unfortunate part of all of this is, I don't know if the women are telling the truth. Yeah, it's hard to tell. lying, but it's downright sad that this leads right to cancel culture. It disrespects me too. Mm-hmm. Because in there right. might be a percentage. If there's truth in there, this, truth, this is washing over this again. This is washing over. It's silencing women again. Because first of all, and men, but it silences his point. Because it's unfortunate a man has to stand alone and has to take on an accusation. It's not a man I once heard that she grabbed my penis and I want to report it. You know what I mean? Because anybody like, well, are you mad about that? The society. The society rules. Why, why are you upset about that? What is funny? What is wrong with him? But then on the other side is that he has every right to say, no, I didn't touch her. They lied. What's wrong with him saying that? They're all lying. Why is that? No one's going to know why? Because this is a political game. And I know that they want me to be president because I have some things to say and I care about the people. Maybe that might be the line. But unfortunately, we don't ever know because that was going to cloud them with the weed. And somewhere in the real truth is going to get buried. Politics is funny because it bends the rules to suit whoever's needs at the time. Watch the but, tax And what we've been saying this, though. Oh, I, and the thing is why they couldn't reach a deal is because they couldn't agree on where the tax should be spent. The local government didn't want New York State to tell them what to do with the local tax dollars. When the money comes in, who's giving it up? The federal government saying it like this. They said, let it go. We do not recognize it. That's the BS of Uncle Sam. But the point of this is the business. And when they finally figure out how to get the revenue to work in their favor, that's when suddenly things become legal. I feel bad for the guy because he's the only governor that got an Emmy Award for telling the truth what was going on. <laughs> to blame him for the mishaps of the of, exactly. of the nurses and doctors and facilities, you know, it's I pretty, it's, pretty heinous. I think it's pretty hard yes, yeah. It's unfair. Maybe they had the breath around. Yeah. yeah, that's that's what like, happened. I mean, I like doing it. I think it's a bad shot, but you took the job. I think since I would say Barack Obama's first presidency, my generation has been so tuned into politics. With every passing year, we pay so much more close attention to what's going on and we're more well, awake. I, and I, I love know. that. It's crazy. I have to agree with you. No president, city president, can claim his effect on the environment, on the economy. Right. He can't. His effect on the economy doesn't come until eight years after he's out of office. Right. And no one wants to admit that. Like, he, his policies are not to eight years after. The smart people oh, acknowledge that. God. I just find it so interesting just to conclude how the type of policies, the way the government works, the way the Senate works, the way the House works, we learned all these things and then we erased it, not thinking it really mattered. But the way the world has changed, we really are like, wow, I wish I paid a, a lot more attention to how the government really worked because I didn't know how it affects me. Well, that's that much of the capital steps piss people off. Howard Zinn was an American historian, playwright, philosopher, and socialist thinker. He was the chair of the History and Social Sciences Department at Spelman College mm. and a political science professor at Boston University. He died January 27, 2010, so well over 10 years ago. And my dad is just recommending to anyone listening to this episode up until now to give the book A People's History of the United States. It came out in August 2nd, 2005 to just Give it a read. Well, what would you say this book's about? Um, it gives a real account how this country moves its government on its American citizens and its real play on the world stage. It tells you the exact truth. All the way up to Bush. The Bush is up, up to Bush's presidency. Oh, all right, great. Well, I'd like to conclude today's conversation. Dad, thank you so much for being on our podcast and just having this very honest conversation with me. With all of us, I feel like I learned a lot from you, even though I've, I've learned more about you in the passing years, but 
I know more about you even more this evening. Amen. I'm just grateful that we are able to have this opportunity together. Honest, it was refreshing. Thank you for having me. I love your content. I love the people. I love the stuff. Keep it going. And I love you. Thank you guys for listening to today's episode of Try. And we'll catch you in our next one. Bye.